0: We previously examined the Tetragrammaton. Today, we're going to talk about how it connects to the name of Jesus and how the name of Jesus relates to the fulfillment of God's promises. So please join me for today's episode of All Things Apostolic. In the last episode, we talked about the Tetragrammaton. It's God's personal name, and it's represented by four Hebrew letters. Remember how we looked at some personal names that includes God's abbreviated name in them? We looked at Jonathan and Jehoshaphat. We saw that the Yod and Hay at the beginning of the names was a shortened form of God's name, and then the rest of the name had a meaning or purpose. Jonathan means Yahweh, or Jehovah, has given. Jehoshaphat means Yahweh, or Jehovah, has judged. In the Old Testament, a well-known character is Joshua, the successor of Moses. In Hebrew, his name was pronounced as Yehoshua. If we look at the name of Yehoshua, we'll see the same pattern. The initial yod and he represent a shortened form of God's personal name. The ending of the name Shua comes from the verb Yashah, which means to rescue, deliver, or save. Yehoshua could be shortened to Yeshua, which in English is Joshua. Now, when the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek, the Hebrew name Yehoshua became Iesus. The name Yehoshua was technically transliterated, meaning the letters in one language were changed for the letters in the other language that made the same or roughly the same sounds. In other words, Iesus is technically a transliteration of the Hebrew name in which the Greek writer tried to take like-sounding letters of the original name in Hebrew to create the word in the Greek language. In the fourth century, Jerome translated the Bible into Latin and the Greek Iesus became the Latin Iesus. And I don't know Latin for sure. So I think that's the the correct pronunciation, but I don't speak Latin. And then the English Bible eventually changed the Y sound of the Latin I to the letter J, which we now have in Jesus. So the name in English is Jesus. The names Yehoshua or Yeshua or Jesus or Jesus are all the same name in different languages and they all mean Yahweh saves or Yahweh is salvation. Now, let me pause here to briefly address a controversy about the pronunciation of Jesus's name. There are some people who claim that we have to use the original Hebrew pronunciation for the name to be legitimate or to have power, but there's nothing in the Bible that gives that indication. The gospel is for the whole world, and God works within different cultures, which includes languages. There are more than 2 billion Christians in the world today and more than 6,000 languages spoken in the world today. If you're from Armenia, China, France, Japan, the Philippines, Italy, Ireland, Russia, or Mexico, Jesus' name is pronounced differently in each country, but that doesn't make it less legitimate or less power because the power is in the name based on the one who stands behind that name. And believe me, Jesus can understand and recognize his name in every language. He hears prayers in every language and he answers his name in every language. So let's talk about the meaning of Jesus' name. His name was predetermined. Mary and Joseph did not make it up. And it's important to think about why Jesus has the name he has. So let's look at how God has revealed himself in scripture. Think of the Bible as a progressive revelation of God's plan to redeem mankind back to himself. There are a number of frameworks that we could that we could use to see this progression in history. The whole Old Testament testifies of Jesus, so we could approach this in a variety of ways. We can literally see how each book of the Old Testament points forward toward Jesus. But for the sake of brevity, let's use the series of covenants in the Bible as an overview or framework of how the Old Testament points toward Jesus. Each covenant provides a unique contribution to the redemptive focus of the Bible and toward Jesus's role. Now, there are seven covenants that are typically identified. They are the Edenic, Adamic, Noahic, Abrahamic, Palestinian, Mosaic, and the Davidic covenants. These were the key covenants made between God and humans in the Old Testament. These covenants also relate to key stages in redemptive history, God's progressive plan to redeem mankind back to himself and they help us to look forward to anticipate the coming of jesus christ so we're going to look at each one just briefly the edenic covenant covers the period of innocence in the garden of eden god gave humans responsibility for creation and he spent time with adam and eve of course this covenant was violated when they sinned and ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil The Adamic covenant relates to the aftermath of the fall. Although there was punishment for Adam, Eve, and the serpent, God also gave the first promise that hinted of a future Savior in Genesis 3.15. Jesus is the seed of the woman, indicating his virgin birth. 1 Corinthians 15 lets us know that Jesus is the last Adam. Even though the first Adam failed, Through Eve would come the last Adam, and he would eventually triumph over the serpent and his seed. The Noahic covenant was made between God and Noah after the flood. With the sign of the rainbow, God promised that he would never again destroy life on earth with a deluge. But this also showed that God will judge sin, and from Noah's son Shem, the promise of a future Savior would stay alive. Next is the Abrahamic Covenant, which leads us to the Patriarchal Period. In this covenant, God's universal plans for redemption are telescoped through a particular family. Through Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Jesus is the offspring of Abraham and the agent of that universal blessing. Through Jesus would come a worldwide spiritual family. Abraham's seed would be as the stars of heaven and as the dust of the earth. Abraham's seed is a term used to encompass all those who believe on Jesus Christ. So through Christ, we receive the spiritual promise of Abraham. The Mosaic Covenant relates to the Exodus and Sinai and the formation of Israel into a nation. In this covenant, God gave His divine law to Moses at Mount Sinai. The covenant is momentous in history. Rather than being a unilateral covenant in which God promised something He would do, this was a bilateral covenant, so both parties had obligations to fulfill. Also, prior to the Exodus, each covenant promise was made to individuals, but now it was greatly expanded with the formation of the nation of Israel. It would be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The people were to be separate and called out, to be recognized as worshiping Yahweh or Jehovah. And this covenant was meant to point toward the Messiah, Jesus, because it made people aware of their sinfulness. It wasn't possible for them to live sinless so it made them realize that they needed a savior. The whole sacrificial system was a foreshadowing of the work of Christ. Jesus fulfilled this covenant by fulfilling the law's demands, and Jesus said that he did not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. He is the perfect high priest, as well as the perfect sacrifice. Next, we have the Palestinian covenant. This is Commonly um, known also more as like a land covenant. It wasn't called the Palestinian covenant in the Bible, but that is what it is commonly referred to. Uh, But it is a land covenant. This is an amplification of the Abrahamic covenant. It occurred right before Moses died when Israel was poised to enter into the promised land. And it includes some special promises to Israel that will not be completely fulfilled until the millennial reign of Christ. Next is the Davidic covenant. God promised to establish David's house, throne, and kingdom. David's lineage and kingdom would last forever. The Davidic covenant basically continues the promise of the seed from the Abrahamic covenant. Christ would be born from David's seed. Jesus is the son of David the root and offspring of David, who will ultimately prevail over demonic powers. So from these covenants, we see a progression of God dealing with humans that includes judgment, but also mercy. There is always hope for the future. Once innocence was lost, there was judgment, but there was also a promise of a redeemer. In the Noahic period, again, there was judgment, the lineage of the promise continued through Shem. The Abrahamic covenant promised a universal blessing through Abraham's seed. The Mosaic covenant formed the nation of Israel with important types and shadows of the work of Christ. The Palestinian covenant amplified the Abrahamic covenant with some promises linked to the millennial reign of Christ. Then with the Davidic Covenant, we see the promise of a Redeemer coming from David with Jesus ultimately sitting on the throne as the true King. We know that the nation of Israel was divided, and then both the northern and southern kingdoms were exiled because of God's judgment on their sin and their rebellion. Eventually, some exiles from the southern kingdom returned to Jerusalem. According to the sequence of the English Bible, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi makes an interesting ending to the Old Testament. The exiles had returned and built the temple. Under the leadership of Nehemiah, the walls of Jerusalem had been rebuilt. The formal worship had been restored, but there was no glorious manifestation of God in their midst, restoring the kingdom to its past glory and the people began to doubt God's promises and his love for them. Malachi reassured them that God still loved them, and he had not forgotten about them. He said that God would come and fulfill his promises, and that coming would be preceded by the prophet Elijah. So the book of Malachi leaves this sense of expectancy. Now, according to the sequence of the books in the Hebrew Bible, The book of Chronicles is last in canonical order. The book of Chronicles is two books in our English Bible, but it was originally one book in the Hebrew Bible, so that's how I'll refer to it. Now, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah provide details about how God brought the exiles back to Jerusalem. As I've already mentioned, they worked to rebuild the temple as a place of God's dwelling. They worked to rebuild the city walls to protect themselves and, in a sense, to preserve their distinctiveness. But the people obviously had questions in their mind. Did God still care about them? Had God rejected them completely? Or his promises still sure? So just like the book of Malachi, the book of Chronicles also offers reassurance and encouragement to the returning exiles but it does it a little differently. It focuses on the Davidic kings. In the book of Chronicles, God talks about how he has preserved his chosen people to be a conduit of blessing to the nations. The book chronicles both good and bad kings, but the emphasis is on the kings who acknowledged God's rule. And God allowed Israel to return from exile because of his faithfulness to his promises. David is especially highlighted as a king who tried to live in accordance with God's instructions, but even he failed. So the book leaves this impression that if only there was a king who could perfectly keep God's commands and ensure never-ending fellowship with God, the book of Chronicles ends with a hope for a perfect Davidic king. So both Chronicles and Malachi leave the reader regardless of which order you look at it in, the order of the Hebrew Bible or the order of the English Bible, the reader is left with a sense of expectancy. God is faithful and he will keep his promises. But when and how? Now, following the Old Testament, we have what we call the intertestamental period. It's the time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and it lasted roughly 400 years. It's sometimes referred to as 400 silent years because there was no prophetic word from God during this time. Then, in the little insignificant town of Bethlehem, the name Bethlehem means house of bread, a young woman gave birth to the bread of life. In Matthew 121, an angel instructed Joseph to call the baby's name Jesus. And as we've already discussed, Jesus means Yahweh or Jehovah is salvation. This is the name of God incarnate, God robed in flesh. His name reflects his purpose. Jesus is Yahweh or Jehovah coming in the flesh to save his people from sin. Mark ten forty five tells us that Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. He is Emmanuel or God with us. And look at how Matthew ties it all together. The New Testament begins with Matthew 1 1, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. Matthew was letting his readers know that the fulfillment of God's promises can be found in Jesus. He is the Son of David and the Son of Abraham. Jesus is the Christ the Messiah or the Anointed One. The Old Testament was a progressive revelation of God's plan of redemption for mankind, culminating in Jesus. In a sense, the Old Testament is really like an old covenant. Jesus brought the old covenant to a climax and initiated a new covenant. Let's look at just a few of the comparisons. The old covenant was associated with Moses. The New Covenant is associated with Jesus. The Old Covenant demanded righteousness, while the New Covenant provided a means for righteousness. The Old Covenant was written on stone, but the New Covenant is written in our hearts. The Old Covenant required the shedding of blood to atone for sin. In the New Covenant, Jesus shed his blood as the ultimate sacrifice. The Old Covenant required many sacrifices. The New Covenant required only one. God is faithful to his promises that were progressively revealed in the Old Testament, and in the New Testament we see that God came himself robed in flesh to redeem humanity back to himself. Acts 20 28 tells us that God purchased this salvation with his own blood Dr. Wilson writes in his book, Rightly Dividing the Word, that this is the God of the Old Testament fulfilling His purposes to bring the entirety of the universe into Himself. Jesus is that God incarnated and His blood is the blood of God shed for us all. Let's see how Paul addressed the identity of Jesus. First, let's see what God says about Himself. In Isaiah chapter 45. Tell ye, and bring them near. Yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no God else beside me, a just God and a Savior. There is none beside me. Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is none else. I have sworn by myself the word is gone out of my mouth in righteousness, and shall not return, that unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. Notice that God uses his personal name in the Tetragrammaton, where the word Lord is in caps. And when he calls himself a savior and says to look at him and be saved, he uses a form of the verb yasha, which means to save. And we know that Jesus has that same meaning built into his name. Plus, God says that to him, every knee will bow and every tongue shall swear. Let's compare this with Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, in which Paul writes, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven, and things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul puts Jesus's name in the Greek form, Iesus, there in the Old Testament text, in his reiteration of the text scripture, making the connection between Jesus and Yahweh, because Jesus is Yahweh, the essence of God is in Jesus. I like what J.R. Enzi says in his Theological Dictionary, in John ten thirty three, Jesus was accused of being a man who made himself God, but Enzi says that they had it exactly backwards. He was God who had made himself man. The fullness of the Godhead dwelt in Jesus bodily. His name, Jesus, meaning Yahweh or Jehovah saves, represents his identity, his character, his essence, and his promise fulfilled. And thank you for joining me today. I look forward to seeing you in a future episode of All Things Apostolic.